This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Jeannie Hugenbroek, um, who blogs as Gardening Jones and also wrote The Gardener and the Cook. Good morning, Jean. Good morning, and thank you for having me on your show, Daryl. Well, I've been looking forward to this for a long time because you have been gardening for a long time. Did, did you come from a gardening family? I do, actually. Um, my great-grandfather, whom I never knew, and my great-uncle, who I did know, were both florists. And my dad grew up working in their greenhouses, so he's been gardening his entire life. So I grew up surrounded by ornamental gardens, absolutely beautiful, um, all kinds of lilies. I mean, you name it. He just he really has a knack for it. And so when I got my hands on some soil, I started doing flowers and things, too. And it was when my son, my oldest child, was about three and a half, he was diagnosed as borderline hyperactive. I mean, not severe, nothing bad, but they were recommending medication, and I didn't want to give them drugs. So I had read that, that diet can play a big role in a, a hyperactive children's behavior, and I started cutting out all of the fake everything from his diet and growing as much as possible and canning as much as I could. It was, the results were immediate. Within a few days, you could see his behavior was calmer. He was sleeping better at night, which means I was sleeping better at night. The whole house was sleeping better at night. And um, it was, I just never turned back. You know, once I saw how much nutrition can mean to somebody, it, it was, I just got bigger and bigger and bigger every single year. The garden just grew, literally. I'm always surprised when we, when we, the more we learn about how the chemicals and additives and things like that in our food are changing behavior in in kids, and then you read some of the studies, and the studies say, no, we can't replicate that. But I've heard from so many mothers who have gotten their kids off of the sugar and some of the processed stuff, and their, the kid's attitude turns around. Absolutely. I mean, it, we are what we eat. And with kids, I think it's even more more intense because their body, their metabolism is so high, you know, and that they're, it just seems like so immediate with them, whereas us, I think it's a longer thing. We don't notice it right away. I think you're right, and I think that somewhere down the line we're going to find out that the food, the, the fake food that we've been eating for the last, oh, 40 years anyway, is going to be causing a lot more harm than, than we think it did or than is immediate, immediately visible. I mean, we see it already now with so many little fat kids. I, I, I was a chunky kid, um, but I was skinny compared to an awful lot of the children that I see today. Yeah, it's it's amazing. I mean, and even like the gen, my generation of the baby boomers, they're they're saying now that some of us won't live as long as our parents. And usually, every generation outlives the generation before. But when you grow up on you know instant mashed potatoes and TV dinners, it, it just wasn't the healthy diet that they they grew up with. They grew up with a lot more fresh food and seasonal food, food that wasn't traveling thirteen hundred miles or six months old by the time it got to them. Better yeah, I was. I was right at the cusp. I remember when TV dinners came out and their little aluminum trays and they made special TV dinner tables to put them on um, <laughs> so people could sit and watch Disney on, you know, on Saturday night. Yeah. And that change, it revolutionized the kitchen. 
It really did. It stopped the family meals. I mean, it, it reduced, I should say, they haven't stopped, but it reduced the family meals, and it changed the family meals. I mean, I imagine now a lot of people are sitting around with their cell phones in their hands eating dinner, and they're probably not even relating much to each other anymore. <laughs> and if it's, if you just go into a drive-thru and that's your, your dinner, then that's absolutely no interaction. Which is, you know, I won't get off on the whole thing about families. <laughs> Stay with nutrition, you know, I think it's, it's, it's so important to eat as much fresh food as you possibly can and certainly as much organic as you possibly can. And people can only pick and choose and they should look at the 12 worst foods. You can find that on the Internet. The Dirty Dozen, they call it 12 most heavily pesticided or herbicided food. And buy those organic. Start there. That's all they can do. You know, last week, my guest was Bree Arthur, and she started growing her own grains. And she told me something that just about stopped me dead in my tracks. She said, even though we don't have genetically modified wheat, but what they are doing to wheat now in order to get it so they can combine it all at once is they're spraying it with herbicides. They're spraying it with Roundup to knock back the foliage, just like that people did with cotton crops. Exactly. And, that just, and, and of course, it happens so close to harvest that you know that stuff is not passing out of the vegetable before we eat it, or the grain in this case. And, yeah, and you said the soil, too. And what, what do you know about, um, about potatoes? Potatoes are, are one of the worst things you can buy at the grocery store. They're not only heavily pesticided to, you know, avoid the Colorado potato beetle or anything else that might attack it, but then they're herbicide as well. So when they're harvested, they're, they're hit with pesticides while they're growing, and when they're harvested, they hit it with an herbicide to kill off the foliage, and then they can just dig up the potatoes. So when you get them, and they're not fresh in the first place when you buy them in the grocery store, they're one of the, the worst possible things to buy as far as man-made chemicals on there. And one of the things that I had heard um, is that potato farmers won't even feed those potatoes to their own families, that they, they grow potatoes in a separate area, in a separate, their own home vegetable garden, away from the, the commercial potatoes, and that's the ones they give their kids. And if you ever grow a potato at home and taste the difference, if you, you'll taste it immediately. But people will say to me, why are you growing potatoes? They're so cheap, you know, but you buy them at the store and grow some raspberries or something more expensive. I grow what I, I want to get fresh and healthy and not doused in man-made chemicals. I won't even eat french fries out. <laughs> I'm getting really bad. I, I just, I won't buy frozen potatoes or any of that stuff. It's either we make it or we get it or we grow it or we, we buy it organic. You know, you'd think that a potato being under the ground that there wouldn't be any pesticide on it. But especially if they're knocking back the foliage late. And I can see, of course, if they're throwing pesticides on it to kill a Colorado potato beetle, um, that that stuff is going to likely drip down on the soil, at least some of it, even though I know farmers are very cautious about how much they use because of the great expense. But you're right. A potato that you dig out of the ground and you eat that day is nothing like what comes from the grocery store. And for since you don't shop in grocery stores for potatoes, um, you may not have noticed that the potatoes these days are they're they're what we used to call culls. 
they're, they're, some of them are split. Um, a lot of them are rotting really, really fast, too. Just like they had um, the, the potato blight that, that caused the famine that, and that's been going up and down the East Coast for the last few years. They just go rotten so fast. So it's, it's kind of scary. And, yeah, I'm even going back to growing my own potatoes now because of that. And, you know, Bray told me something else, too, for, for our southern gardeners. Now, I don't know if it, this would work for you because you're up in northeastern Pennsylvania, right. I think. And your ground probably freezes pretty hard. But what Bree does is she plants her potatoes that have started to sprout. Um, she plants them in the fall, overwinters them, and, of course, they go... You know, the tops go down, they go completely dormant over the winter, and then they start growing again in the spring. That was another idea that blew me away. And I wonder if northern gardeners could do that under, say, a, a bale of Halloween straw or something like that, or whatever they might have hanging around, lots of old mulch or something. And I, I just wonder about that, because I, I'm like you. I, I would let, rather get people growing their own food. And potatoes aren't even cheap anymore. You know, I used to be able no. to get a five-pound bag of potatoes for a buck. And I've seen some outrageous prices in the grocery store. But now you mentioned buying potatoes in the store. And I think the one reason that a lot of people buy potatoes in the store is because they grow them at home and then they sprout. What do you do about that? I bet our listeners want to know. Well, but one thing you can do is if you grow a lot of potatoes that you think are not going to make it till the following season so that you can regrow, one thing you can do is you can start them in the house, which I've done. We'll just, I will put them in a, in a container that I'm going to put outside in the following spring and so I'll start them in there. But you can also uh, cook potatoes and freeze them. So once we get to about the middle of the winter, we'll take a lot of our potatoes and make mashed potatoes and home fries and all that stuff and then just freeze it. And then it also saves you time <laughs> when you're making your meals or, or heading out in the morning. You've already got stuff already made. You can freeze potatoes raw. They don't, they, you really, they really don't hold as well. I prefer to cook them first. I think they, they survive better that way and they taste better that way. But you can you know, store I'm, potatoes indoors. Um, I've thought about... I've thought about, as soon as you mentioned that, I, I said, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense because usually I will cook up way more pota mashed potatoes for Thanksgiving than we need just because I don't do mashed potatoes a lot. And as long as you're going to make the mess and have to hand wash the potato masher and stuff like that, you might as well make a bunch. And then I just freeze it for later. Yeah, that works. And you can make all kinds of potato cakes out of there. You can mix it with butternut squash and make squash cakes. or make You can make beet burgers. And there's all kinds of stuff you can do with potatoes that are already cooked. Now, mashed you, oh, mashed potatoes are wonderful. Um, you, have a, you have a cooking blog, we should tell people. You have a couple of blogs and a website, don't you? Yes, I do. I'm kind of a maniac when it comes to doing things. <laughs> I was having so many recipes on uh, my gardening blog that it was it was becoming too uh, busy. You know, it was too. I thought it might be difficult for people to find what they want, and not everybody wants recipes. A lot of people don't want recipes. So I actually started another blog called Gardening Jones's Recipe Box, and it's not just recipes; it's also information on how to make your own flavored vinegars, how to make um, like a pancake dry mix so you're not buying what's in the grocery store. You can make it yourself and the pancakes not only taste better, you, don't, you know you don't have the chemicals in there. 
Um, even things on grinding your own cornmeal, if you want to make sure you have organic, non-GMO corn and you have the room to dry or grow dry corn, and you can make your own cornmeal and then take that into uh, muffins and what my mother used to call Johnny Cake, which is a, a cornmeal cake that she used to make. Things like that. It's not just, you know, here's a recipe. It's all other kinds of information as well. That sounds like fun. And I will put both of your blogs um, up on our Facebook page so people can find them and they don't have to do that. But now you've got everybody intrigued, I betcha, and they want to know why the name Gardening Jones. It, um, it actually was a kind of a joke. <laughs> it was um, that, oh, it's almost 20 years ago now, I guess. I, the Internet was a big, had just, it was a big thing. Was, you know, I, I was very intrigued by learning what I could, and I, I wanted to try to make a website, which I did. And I needed a name. And um, when I was in high school, there was a song called Basketball Jones. And Jones means an addiction. Um, I feel, some of you will say I'm Joe's Jonesin for this or I'm Jonesin for that. So I thought, well, gardening Jones, because I, I'm addicted to gardening. I absolutely love it. And I put up a little website, and it's still there. And it, it was pretty um, stagnant until about uh, nine years ago. I was on Facebook. And I was playing all those farming games. You know, and it's so addictive. And you have to have people help you. And I wasn't really aware of Facebook rules. And I started, uh, not only did I have my own uh, Facebook page, I started one called Gardening Jones so I could actually friend myself. And I guess it was the name. Within a couple of weeks, I had 500 friends. And they, most of them were gardeners. And my daughter, who was in high school at the time, she said, Mom, you know, you know so much about gardening, you should do a blog. And uh, so I, I, and I didn't even know what a blog was. I had heard the word, but I wasn't really sure. So she explained it. And I started doing that and um, trying to help people learn how to grow their own food, try to get the word out there about how, it, I mean, it, it's easy when you think about it. You can stick a bean seed in the ground and you're going to get beans. You know, it, it doesn't need to be all complicated. You can make it complicated if you want to. But it really doesn't. Hey, we, we're going to take a little break right now, but we'll come back, right back and talk more about gardening right after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is an author and a blogger at Gardening Jones, and she was just telling us about her name, Gardening Jones. You know, that's kind of funny. Do they even use the term jonesing for something anymore? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm showing my age. <laughs> but a lot of people actually thought Jones was my, my real name. 
and um, which I thought was kind of funny. People would call me Jonesy. And I saw people on Facebook either refer to me as Jones or TJ, even though Facebook made me get rid of the gardening Jones name on my personal page. I do have it on my Facebook, um, you know, Facebook page. But uh, it, it, it just kind of cracked me up that people would refer to me that way. But it's, uh, I don't think they do. I don't know. I haven't heard the, the, the phrase Jones in, in ages, actually, now. But it's, uh, well, it's easy to remember. And, and it reach, your, uh, your audience obviously knows who you are. And because and, you get a lot of responses on your blog pages and on your Facebook page. I know a lot of bloggers just kind of slog around and, and really get no response. But you are reaching a lot of people and serving a need. Well, thank you. Uh, I, you. I really enjoy it. One of the things I really liked about is that you talk about keeping it simple. Because you read a lot of gardening books, and they go into so much detail. And I think a newbie just says, oh, Lordy, if you have to do all this, I can't garden. A lot of people do feel overwhelmed, and that was one of the things I was hearing. And there's also a lot of people are, are very much out of touch with gardening and, and with their food supply. So I really did target um, my information to the per people that are just starting. I, I actually was asked a question when I plant a, a carrot seed, how many carrots do I get? And that's a very valid question because every time you see carrots, you see them in a bunch. So who mm -hmm. knows? I mean, you get more than one tomato from a tomato seed, how, you know. So I thought, you know, I've really got to try to get this information out there as much as possible. And as, and as you say, keep it simple so that people don't feel like they're, they're completely overwhelmed and give up. You know, they start something simple and just take it from there. We both came from backgrounds where we had gardeners in our lives. And some, I'm, sometimes when I try to explain things to somebody, I have to sit back and think, now, what if I didn't know anything about this? And you do that very much better than I do. You take things in, in nice, simple steps for people, and I think that's really valuable. Now, do you grow all of your own fruits and vegetables, or do you go to the store sometimes? Uh, we do have to go to the store sometimes, especially like this year we're going to be. Um, we did not have the best season. I, it's actually in my top five worst seasons <laughs> this past season, but um, we try to grow as much as we possibly can. Um, we even make our own soaps and stuff, so we're not at the store very often. We might go once a month for a few things, but we still have um, a lot of stuff canned from last year, a lot of dehydrated food, and we still have some items in the freezer that we're finishing off now and the new stuff that went in, but our squash this year was much less than we normally have. That um, even our tomatoes, it, it just was not a good tomato year. So we do have some salsa left from last year, and we have enough to make some marinara for this year. But um, we're, I think we're going to change what we grow next year and, and prepare more for bad seasons. And hopefully then we'll have a great season and we'll just be overwhelmed and be giving it all away <laughs> in, yeah. in a perfect world. It's nice to have extra giveaway. It just makes you feel good. And especially if you can turn somebody on to eating a vegetable that they had never eaten before or finding out how much different a fresh vegetable tastes than one from the store. Now, what happened to your tomatoes this year? Because my tomatoes had a terrible year for the third year in a row because it rained so often. And then well, we were actually course, low on rain. Well, our rain finally shut off, and then for about a month and a half, and now it's been raining. We had a sunny day yesterday, but it started raining in the middle of last week, and it's supposed to rain all weekend, too, and it's cloudy as all get out and supposed to rain this afternoon. But I ended up with late light out the wazoo this year. How about you? 
Yeah, we got it. We got it. I was prepared because uh, what I do is I watch what's going on in Florida. Because if, if Florida gets it, it comes right up the coast, and, and we are, you know, we get it too. So I had moved my tomatoes quite a distance from where they had been before, and I think that helped a little bit. I'm not sure. sure. Maybe I'm just that lucky. Our problem was we were actually had less rain. I think we were down about 13 inches this year. And wow. as much as you can water your tomatoes, it's just not the same thing. And we never really got the heat until September. So it was like spring never got here. When it did, it never left. You know, <laughs> now our tomatoes are doing great. So I moved them into the greenhouse and I put them under protection. Hopefully we'll get them till the end of the month because I know we'll get a freeze this month. And we'll see how long we can keep them going. We have a lot of indeterminate types, so they keep producing until the weather takes them out. But it really, I, I, even my corn was a month behind this year. And it wasn't just myself. I know the local farmer's market are just putting their corn out now, and normally it's out by Labor Day. Wow. So it, it was just a, it was not a good season. <laughs> but you never know. It's always a crapshoot, right? You do your best and, and it is. get what you get. It is. And that's kind of like that old kid's fable about the ants and the grasshopper and how the ants would store up the food and the grasshopper just said, you know, why bother? We've got all this food here. But the ants were, of course, right. They, winter came and, and the ants survived and the grasshopper didn't. Um, now, well, how long is your growing season up there? It, um, the main growing season is from the last weekend in May to about the middle of September. We actually start here literally as soon as the grounds can be worked. So if we can get a shovel in the soil in the middle of March, then we're out there planting peas and greens and some of the other things. And we extend as much as we can on, on the end of the season. So I do have um, raised beds. I have a, we have something we're calling the Jones's Gardening System, and it's actually a, a raised bed that you can enclose like, like a, a, a high tower, except it's only four by four and by, by six feet high. So we can extend the season at least a good three weeks with that. And we have a little greenhouse, too, that we're just playing with this year to see how long we could keep the tomatoes, mainly the tomatoes, going because that's the main thing you want to have fresh that you can't really store. Nothing like a tomato sandwich. <laughs> In October, it's even more special. Yes, it is. I've got a greenhouse, too, and I found that um, I, peppers do well in containers in the greenhouse over the winter. Tomatoes, not so much. Um, I found that it works better with tomatoes to start them extra early in the greenhouse, Be and mostly not because of the weather, but because of the amount of sunlight they get. You know, now, of course, we're already into short days compared to what we were a couple of months ago, whereas in spring, right now, you know, say in March, we, we have this much daylight and the plants are just getting started and they're small enough that you could put a, a shop light in there, you know, a fluorescent shop light if they need the extra boost. And the other thing that I have found was with a greenhouse, and I hope you don't find this out too, is that bringing the plants in for the winter, you tend to bring in diseases and insects that are really hard to deal with. I didn't Whereas, know that. I if you know, start, we will be yeah, be, be prepared is, is the main thing. Be, you know, have all your, your arsenal of soapy water or whatever you use um, handy. Because for me, I just thought, well, of course, I'll just bring in my plants. And then I ended up, you know, with really horrible cases of white fly. Or you bring in something that has a little bit, a little spot of early blight. And because it's so, it's nice and warm and humid in the greenhouse, um, it just goes boom all over the plant really, really fast. 
So something to think about and to be aware of. And maybe you'll get lucky. You know, maybe. We, you never know. We garden in, in different conditions. And your greenhouse is new, and, and mine, mine went over um, what had been part of my vegetable garden. I've got a 14 by 14 greenhouse, and it sits on, well, maybe a, a sixth of or an eighth of a section of, of old garden. So there was probably a little bit of disease in there, too. But I think more, of, more likely what happened and has happened when, whenever I've tried it is that I'm just bringing it in. You know, cause, of course, we live down here in Georgia where it's hot and humid and we have a lot of disease and insect pressure, much more than the Northeast. So, um, we, of course, all used to fuss in the Northeast about how buggy it was and how humid it would be on a July day. Now, you're up in in northeastern Pennsylvania, so is that, is that Zone 5 there? We were five, and, and they recently said that we're six now because of global warming. But, uh, you know, it depends on where you're standing in my garden, I think. So I usually say five, six, because my largest section of garden is up on a, a knoll. So it's, it's raised to begin with. It's warmer up there. It gets more sun up there. So I figure that's six. But the raised beds we have in the rest of the yard, it's lower elevation, slightly lower elevation. So I think they're more five. So five, six, somewhere in there. Yeah, it always amazes me um, when I go to other people's gardens and I see all these little microclimates that that they have that they didn't know that they had. I, I used I teach a lot of gardeners, and I used to do garden design and and garden coaching, and it's really fun I think to go and map your garden, you know, just do a quick sketch and then make lots of copies of it and go out to your garden at different times of year and see what's what's happening. You know, where are the spots that are staying cold, and where does, it, where does it get frosty first and last, and where does the snow stick around the longest? And then in the summer, you know, go by how fast things are growing. And I think people can put a lot more in their garden than they think, that, than they, think they can, just like you found. You've got different places. Now, you grow fruit trees, too, don't you? Yes, I do. We have a few fruit trees. We put in um, a few more this past spring some new apple trees that we're, we're still waiting on, but we got a wonderful supply of pears this year. This was the best pear year that we've ever had, so that made up for the tomatoes a little bit. <laughs> I love pears. And we have a pear tree that it's, um, it's a dwarf pear tree. It's grafted to produce three different kinds of pears, and it's seven years old, and, and last year it did not have much of a, a harvest, and I thought, well, man, maybe it's on its way out. You know, it's, it's served its time. But this year, it was so loaded, I had to brace it. I had to pick some of the pears early. The, the pears got gigantic that were still eating them. The dog stole one off the counter last night. He had a good time. <laughs> he's, a really, he's a very big dog. He's a lab and game mix, so he, nothing is safe from him unless it's on top of the refrigerator. <laughs> uh, and he loves fresh fruits and vegetables. He loves hot peppers more than anything. But back to the trees, we do. We did have to um, We put in a new peach tree. We had to take down our old peach tree this year. It, it just would not produce anymore. It had split down the middle, and it was just sad to see it go. That was my, my gift when I quit smoking. So it's been there for 16, 17 years now, so it, it, mm-hmm. it, it had a good life. But, um, yeah, it, there's nothing like fresh fruit that you grow yourself. Growing fruit, I find fruit trees much more difficult than anything else. You have to, there's so many more diseases they seem, the trees seem to get, and you have to thin out the plants to get the, the fruit to get more, 
it seems a lot more involved than I expected it to be. Certainly more involved than blueberry bushes or raspberry canes, which produce that abandon and they, you know, are very easy to grow. Yes, you're right. Um, there, there are a lot of diseases, and especially we as organic gardeners have a little bit more difficult time with some of the diseases and insect control than somebody that wants to or is willing to spray every couple of weeks. And frankly, I'm just not about to do that. I don't want it, you know, if I'm going to eat something that's been sprayed a lot, I'll buy it at the store. So it's not something, that's not any place that I want to go. But you mentioned peaches, and peaches probably are, you know, peaches and those in that family are probably the most difficult for a home gardener to do because they are subject to so many diseases. We're going to have to take a little break in a few, in a couple of seconds. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you more about your pears and want to let people know to get a sheet of paper so they can write down a recipe because you made some really good stuff. We'll come right back with more America's Homegrown Veggies right after this. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call. And I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose. And with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and this week I'm talking to Jeannie Hoogenbrook, um, who blogs as Gardening Jones. And you started out life, um, your career, as a cook, didn't you? Or somewhere in the food industry? Actually, well, not exactly. My husband's a cook, and he has a degree in food service and, and hotel management. And we actually met when we were kids, but we started uh, working in a restaurant together. I think we were about 18 or 19 years old. And I was washing dishes and then waiting tables, and then we ended up owning a restaurant. So that's not, I'm actually have a degree in human services um, and theological studies. So my my uh, career path did not include food or preparing food or cleaning up about food, but it ended up happening that way. When we owned the restaurant, I learned so much because I was canning all our jams, and we made everything from scratch, our salad dressings, all the breads, everything. I love to bake, so I enjoyed that. I learned how to make a lot of different salads and, and things. And it, it was so much involved with the garden that it really did become a big part of my life. And now in my current job, I work at a senior center, but we could do our own food here. So I do menu development and recipe development um, to provide the meals for our very active and very vocal seniors that, that come here for activities. Um, so it, it ended up that way. It just was not intended to go that way. Isn't it strange how we end up uh, 
I, I certainly never intended to be on the air talking about um, gardening, but I had another radio show for over 10 years and, and ended up I, I taking the Master Gardener course. And I understand that you're a Master Gardener, too. Is that right? I am. I am. I, I um, was fascinated by the whole, uh, uh, everything that they do, you know, the, the fact that people are going willing to study that much, get, learn that much information. Uh, mm-hmm. put their own free time into teaching others. I just thought that was the most amazing thing. So I did become a master gardener in my 50s. And the following year, my dad decided to become a master gardener. So he was 85. And um, he's very proud of his master gardening certificate. And he does, he's at, he, now he's 92. And he makes videos um, on growing ornamentals and on building raised beds and building cloches and all kinds of information. So it's something that we have in common. And, and even though I only grow a few ornamentals and a lot of vegetables, and he grows a few vegetables and mostly ornamentals, we can still talk about the plants. And I'm still learning from him all the time. Every time I talk to him, he teaches me something I never knew before. That's wonderful. I think that's just absolutely terrific. And I'm, I'm so glad that he came to it late in life, even though he had been a horticulturist all his life. Um, but the Master Garden Program is just a, it's refreshing for anybody that hasn't, that's even thought about it. And yeah, you do have to put in volunteer hours, but the volunteer hours are where you're learning so much from other people and from uh, from studying, making sure that you're going to get everything right. Or even if you're just, you know, volunteering at the extension office and answering the phones, you know, the questions that people have and the, the bugs and things that they bring into the office, you learn, learn something every day. And it's just a hoot and a half. And you so really you would, but, but you had been gardening for long, for quite a while before you took the master gardening course, hadn't you? I yes, I actually for almost uh, probably about twenty five years at that point. But I was so um, involved in vegetables that I didn't know much about fruit trees and deciduous. All these words that I had never heard of. You know, I mean, I I knew how to grow something, but I didn't know the botanical name. I didn't know the importance of knowing the botanical name. Um, I didn't know how to graft. I didn't. There was so much I didn't know, and and I also after doing that and then starting the blog. And getting asked so many questions, if I get asked online, I get email questions as well. You learn so much finding the information to help another person, both ways, you know, blogging and master gardening, that uh, I probably learned more in the last 10 years than I learned in the first 20 about gardening just by doing the blogging and helping, trying to help other people learn. I think that that works. Yeah. Yeah. Social Um, media is amazing, too. You just get, you can... I, I'm blown away by social media these days because I, I go back to the early days of CompuServe Gardening Forum back when it cost you a very large fortune to get on for just a couple of minutes. And and it's so different now. Everybody can get online. And the information is out there as long as you're looking in the right place and not... I can't, I'm blown away by what some people recommend for their plants. Um, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's just... <laughs> Just to remind folks to look, if you're, if you're in doubt, go to someplace like the Garden Professors or look for something that says .edu after the website. And there are a few people like Gardening Jones that take the time to look up and get the right information. So there are some good blogs out there, but, oh, Jeannie, there are so many that are oh, just for um, me. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm actually admin a gardening group that has 18,000 people, and, and it's only edibles. 
We don't even do, I have another group for, for ornamentals. This one is only edible. And no matter how many times we'll say things, you know, people say you can't buy GMO corn or you can't pick corn seeds and no, don't you, no, you don't need to do that. There's still a lot of misinformation that people are sharing. I'm glad they're sharing it, but they, they need to check it out before they pass it along. Because it's, especially with, I think, with genetically engineered, it's probably the biggest amount of misinformation uh, of any other subject that I see. People really are confused. And I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if Monsanto's happy that people are confused. If they're confused, maybe they'll buy stuff and not realize that. So many people think they might go to the store and buy genetically engineered seeds, Monsanto seeds, and you can't do that. No, not as a homeowner, you can't. You have to be licensed, and you have to sign your life away if you do buy it and say that you'll never share seeds or anything like that. But people can get it off a lot of genetically engineered food at the grocery store. Um, I haven't heard how Walmart's um, genetically modified corn did last year. They were going to be selling that in their grocery department. And that's sort of quietly gone away. I haven't heard anything else about it. Have you? I haven't, no. I, I didn't even know that they had actually started. I had heard the year before that they were going to. And I know there was yeah. a lot of outrage. One of the gardening groups did a survey and checked around in quite a number of their stores, and it was only a fairly small number that had it. And, of course, they're now getting an awful lot of organic food in their grocery departments, which I'm happy to see. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it's what the people want. You know, if you refuse to buy junk, they'll stop selling junk. You know, if you demand something better they'll start selling something better. And, and I think people are. People are getting tired of being sick. They want healthier choices at a reasonable price. <laughs> I've noticed that even in our regular local grocery stores, um, the prices on organics have been down, have come down amazingly from what they were five years ago. But there are a lot more organic farmers out there, too. I still yeah, prefer I agree. I'm still prefer if I'm not growing it myself to buy it from a local farmer rather than something that's been trucked in for thousands of miles away. But it's nice to know that it's out there for people that don't have that luxury. Exactly, and, and you, you know everybody has to buy something. Well, almost everybody has to buy something at the grocery store. There are some people that live completely off the grid, but um, you know it, it's good to see a better better options in the grocery stores. Even our local grocery store, which is very small is starting to carry more organic things. And um, they are a little bit more expensive, but personally I think it's worth it, especially if it's one of the dirty dozen, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, like celery, for example. Celery is difficult for a lot of people to grow, and it's, I think last year it was number one on the pesticide list. So if you can get celery organic, that's a very good choice to make. So that is something everybody should look into if they haven't already, to check out the, the dirty dozen. I had posted the dirty dozen website um, I guess last year on Facebook, but I will take it out again, and and because there's also the clean fifteen or something like that too. Yeah. That also don't that don't have very many. But I will I will dig that out and I will put that up on the show notes this week. Sure, um, and it changes every year. They redo it every year, so it's the mm-hmm. keep on top of it. Now some of them are things that you can wash or peel, and I don't worry about them quite so much. And and, and if people have to make a decision. What they what they can buy, I would rather have them concentrate on the ones that you can't peel and that are heavily 
pesticide, like like the celery that you mentioned. And then if you have to buy non-organic produce, you know, do it at something else, not, not right. a dirty dozen, especially if you're feeding kids. Yeah, that's, I think when my grandson was born two and a half years ago, actually just when we heard he was coming, I got even more intensely um, involved in finding out what's in the food supply, and even in, in especially in children's food supply. And uh, my daughter went with um, organic formula. He was lactose intolerant uh, when he was, was a baby, so she went with the organic soy milk. And I was like, ah, soy, no. <laughs> don't, I don't give him soy milk. But we found an organic brand and um, at Earth, Earth Best, it, it's called. And she uses them a lot for a lot of his, his food. Now he's getting older. He's eating table food, of course. So she's just very careful as to what she gives him. And, and I try to provide her with what I can, and she tries to grow as much as possible, too. You I know, think that's a good way to be. Um, now, you, you said you, you're growing organically. Do you grow a lot of heirlooms, or do you grow a lot of hybrids, or do you grow a mixture, or how do you do that? We've got about three minutes before the break. Okay. I, got, I Actually, I grow a variety. Um, I'm going going to grow more hybrid tomatoes next year than I did this year. I was all heirloom tomatoes, and I think that... They didn't handle the bad weather as well. Hybrids have their place, you know. I, I don't grow hybrids for uniformity or market value or any of that stuff. But if it's a disease-resistant variety and I've been having an issue with that disease, yeah, I'll choose the hybrid. Uh, the downside is the seed saving isn't as, as um, good. You could save the seeds, but you don't know what you're going to get exactly. But I, I do grow a variety. Heirlooms are wonderful, and I love passing it on, but... Uh, yeah, I love trying new things, so I often will buy some heirloom seeds just to try a new squash or whatever and then see what I get the following year, if it crossed or not, with another squash. But I do a, a mixture. And we do grow a lot of, of, we grow herbs, I mean, you name it, everything that, that you can eat, and some very strange things. This year we grew something called papalo or papalo. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It tastes like a cross between cilantro and lime. It's unbelievably delicious and extremely mm. potent, and I'm never growing cilantro again. <laughs> this is going to be my herb replacement for cilantro. It's like five feet high, too. It's huge. That's again. Wow. And now, does it take, um, will it go through the hot summer? It did. I mean, it, it handled the weather completely. It's going like a weed. Um, it, like I said, it's very tall. It's very productive. If I had pinched it, it probably would have been even more productive. We're going to have more herbs than we need for the whole year because it's so strong, too. It's something it, it's really interesting to look into. The only hard part is getting it started, so I recommend if anybody's going to try it, start it indoors. And I did put a, a piece on the blog about it because it, at the first year I tried to direct seed. It was very unsuccessful. The second year I tried it again, and I did um, started indoors, and the direct seed again did not come up. But the one that I started indoors, a lot of them came up. I was giving them away because the, they started so well inside. But it's, it's a little bit difficult. It's a little tricky to start, but once you get going, it, the flavor is just absolutely incredible. I guess it's a, a big thing in a lot of the Mexican restaurants. They actually have the plant there and said, take what you need, because it's, some people can cool. handle the, how powerful it is and others can't. Very intense. So you really don't need nearly as much, and you get, I mean, cilantro for us in the Northeast, it's, it's always bolting before, you know, and, and yeah, it's great to have the seeds, but if you want to grow cilantro, I would really suggest somebody try this papalo, P-A-P-A-L-O itself. I'm probably not saying it right. I will put that up on our Facebook page, too, so that people have that information. 
I've, I've never heard of it myself. Um, of course, it's only recently that I've been able to tolerate eating cilantro, but that's a story for none the time. We've got to take a little break right now, but we'll be back with America's Homegrown Veggies right after this. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is author and blogger Jeannie Hugenbrook, and I want to mispronounce your name again, and I'm sorry. <laughs> Once I yeah, get a name in my good. head... That was pretty good. Good. Once I get a name in my head, a pronunciation, um, it's hard for me to get out of the habit of it. Yes. And you, you um, blog at Gardening Jones, and you've done articles for um, Horticulture Magazine, and you're the author of a book. But before we, so we don't run out of time, tell people about your book. Well, the the book um, came pretty much directly from the blog. It um, talks about how to grow. 40, more than 40 of the most common vegetables and some fruits and some herbs, the things that people are much are most likely to put in there. It compares varieties. Uh, it keeps everything simple, but it gives you the information you need to know. It also tells you things like that you could eat beet tops, for example, or you could eat the leaves of sweet potatoes, which a lot of people don't know. So some of that information is in there as well. And then it goes on. There's more than 100 recipes that are either from our restaurant days, my husband and I used to own and operate a restaurant. He's, he's a cook and he has a background in food. Or there are recipes that we developed um, at home. And it's all using, they're, they're all vegetarian, but you can certainly add meat to them. But they're um, all using the things that you have grown in, in your own garden. So a lot of people say, well, I, I grew Swiss chard this year, but I had no idea what to do with it, so I gave it away. I've actually heard that from a number of people. So the recipes are in there, and it, you'll know what. And, and you can look at that in the wintertime and say, oh, this sounds good. Maybe I'll grow that this summer. Maybe I'll try this vegetable or that herb this summer so I can make this dish. So it's really aimed mostly at the beginning gardeners. So I know a number of people said that they read it and they learned things about gardening that they didn't already know, which I'm glad to hear. And there is a sequel coming out, too. Uh, it's going to be more advanced, not more difficult gardening, just some of the stranger items that you don't typically garden or typically grow, um, like the papalo that we were just talking about, and then recipes, again, to use those, and some ideas, just stuff in there about um, how to store things and how to can and all that information, everything you need to get it from the garden to your router and then to your table. And the book is called The Gardener and the Cook? Yes. It's actually my husband and I met when we were kids, and I was not a gardener, and he was not a cook. We were 10 and 11 years old. 
we got married uh, 11 years later, and now I'm a gardener and he's a cook, and so it, it worked out well. And we wrote the, the cookbook together, the cookbook part. Um, I did the, the gardening part, and he helped a lot with developing the recipes. He he's just has a knack for it. He's one of those people that's naturally good at cooking. He can he can look in the refrigerator and make a meal, and I'll look in the refrigerator and be like, ah, there's nothing to eat. You know? <laughs> and he can put off a whole meal that, like that. Yeah, a skilled cook can do that. I am just always amazed by what my aunts could dig, dig out of the refrigerator or out of their garden, and they would whip up a meal, you know, when guests would show up, um, un- completely unexpected, because, of course, back in those days, um, nobody made long-distance phone calls because they cost so much. So if you were out traveling, you just stopped by, and, and my aunts were marvelous cooks, and they could do anything with anything. Yeah, that's now, um what is the oddest thing that you've grown? Is it the papalo or, or something else? Um, probably the papalo. I've grown um, prickly pears. It's kind of strange <laughs> uh, for the Northeast anyway. Um, I grew quinoa this year. You know, maybe it's the flax. I grew flax, which is, they're beautiful flowers. Um, there's blue ones. There's one called golden flax, which ours actually produce white flowers. They're absolutely gorgeous, delicate. The bees love them. And then you can harvest the seeds that they produce. And you can use flax seeds to substitute for eggs in a lot of recipes or just to add some um, nutrition. So that was kind of weird. It was a real cross between ornamental and edible, more so than anything else. The quinoa is the same way. The quinoa and uh, the amaranth. But a lot of people grow it for the flower value alone. It's absolutely beautiful. This year we grew golden giant, and it's, it's just gorgeous, and it's just now coming to seeds. So we'll be harvesting that soon. Every year, though, I go through all the seed catalogs to look for something I've never heard of before and see if I can pull it off. Especially now, how large is our area? How large is your garden? It's gigantic. It's um, it, the, the, I have twelve four by four foot raised beds. Then I have three more that are larger than that, and that's not the garden. The garden's actually bigger than that. So my front bed, I call it the roadside garden. There's two garden areas. The roadside garden, the front bed is 60 feet by 3 feet, and then it comes kind of like in a triangle, so they get smaller and smaller as you go. But it's packed. I mean, it's packed with fruit trees on top and, and, you know, herbs below, everywhere you could possibly put something. My husband calls it a girly garden because he said it's hard for him to walk through there. <laughs> He's too big. <laughs> they have, the, the paths are real tiny. They're just big enough to get a wheelbarrow and me through them. Um, <laughs> it's absolutely back. And it, it's great. It's a, a wonderful conversation piece. And we live in the country, but we get traffic on our road. We're in a tourist area, and people will just pull over and ask to see the garden because they can see it from the road, so they'll just pull in the yard and can I look at your garden? It's so big, you know. And <laughs> you want to see, how did you get that in there? So it's nice. I get to meet a lot of people that way and, and, and get food at the same time. But it's it's huge. I'm actually, every year I tell myself I'm going to tone it down the next year. I'm going to cut down a little <laughs> bit. And, you know, yeah, right. Like, <laughs> and then I end up building another bed or, you know, whatever. It gets bigger. It doesn't seem to stop. But as I get older, it is getting more and more difficult to maintain. So the larger area by the road, I'm going more and more with perennials every year. Um, so I can just go up there and heavily mulch it, and I won't have as much trouble or as much work because it's, it's all low to the ground. They're, they're raised beds, but over the years, they kind of sunk. And then um, the, the most intense part of the garden is going to be closer to the house and not up a hill and, you know, closer to the water supply and all that stuff. 
Yeah, all those concessions that we make to age, but it's important to think about them before it actually happens that you get, um, you know, just that you can't do it. Because it's a whole lot easier. Like when I changed my garden around, when I realized that with my genetics and the fact that I already had arthritis when I was 16, I, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to keep up two-thirds of an acre with as many things as I had. You know, I had 100 feet of perennials, and I had 150 feet of roses, and I had um, the, the vegetable garden was probably not as big as yours, but it was 60 feet by 30 feet, and then in an L going for another 40 feet um, at the back of the yard. And my husband used to bring it, he used to do that by tomato harvesting, and he would bring in five-gallon buckets of tomatoes every year, and then I, I, every every couple of days in the summer, and then we would stay up until midnight canning. And I realized that that was just not going to work, so I was able to make some changes and take the flower beds out and put in flowering trees and shrubs and put in a few more fruits that were easy to do, like you mentioned, that blueberries and raspberries are a whole lot easier than fruit trees are. Um, but, yeah, you do have to think about that. And I think that new homeowners often bite off more than they can chew, too. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's people are very enthusiastic, and that's great. And But it is better to start small and to see how much you can handle and, and think about the future. I mean... As I get older, I, I do more raised, really raised beds, like three, you know, two and a half feet off the ground raised beds, where I can just sit on a chair next to it, or, or I don't have to bend down. I don't have to get down on my knees. That's probably the hardest part for me. Well, not getting yeah. down, getting back up is the hardest part. But, uh, <laughs> you just you you keep those things in mind. But a lot of, of home gardeners, and they, they, one thing I see a lot is they'll play in their garden in the winter, that they have the first winter in the house, and they don't look at the trees. You know, is, is that tree going to leaf out? And where is the sun coming from? And, you know, and I did the same thing myself. In my first garden, got so much shade that the tomatoes hardly did well at all because I didn't really think about what it was going to look like when all the trees had leaves on them. And, you know, so mm-hmm. those are all things to consider. And, you know, and make the most from the space that you have. And I'll, I'll, probably the most common thing I see in people that are growing in this, the cities is they don't account for the fact that there can be deer and rabbits, and there's certainly squirrel in the cities. And the first year will be like, well, I don't mind sharing with my, my garden. And the second year is more like <laughs> they ate everything, you know, like they wiped me out. Because, you know, you feed them one year, you, you've got them for life, and you've got their kids and their grandkids and neighbors, uh-huh. you know, the whole bunny population. So I do see that a, a lot and it, it is frustrating. Every gardener that's ever walked out into their garden and a deer had hit it the night before knows what it's like to just be completely wiped out in, in one yeah. couple hours, you know, and it's heartbreaking. So those Especially when yeah. you've raised them from little seeds that you've planted yeah. and you've tenderly taken care of them, and then a groundhog or a deer or something comes through and just wipes you out. But it is all part of gardening. Pardon me? And I, I said but it is part of gardening, and... We live and learn and learn how to put up deer fences if we need to. And I haven't gone so far as to shoot squirrels, but I've been really tempted more than Yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> I, it's a good thing I, my garden's so close to the road because that made the decision for me. <laughs> There's no way I would, but squirrels, are, squirrels can really be bad. In fact, that's when we started building the raised beds. Part of the reason was I had one summer 
that the squirrels got 20% of my tomatoes. Like one out of every five tomatoes that I was harvesting had been bitten into. And it was, huh. it was just heartbreaking to see that many go. I mean, they weren't going mm-hmm. to waste. I was throwing them in the woods for the wildlife, but to, to lose that much. So that was it. It was war at that point. And I, we built these beds and we used um, screening so they can't get in. And the bugs can get in to, to pollinate, but the squirrels can't get in there. And they pretty much left. They're probably aggravating the neighbors now because we stopped them from attacking us anymore and, um, and from helping themselves. My husband was calling it the squirrel buffet, the roadside garden. <laughs> there were so many there. There must have easily been 10 squirrels that, that you would see at any given time. You just can't stop that many at all at once. But That's we, we about what it was time. like here this spring. And the hawks and the owls and the traffic have gotten some of them. But, but two years ago, we had a huge acorn crop, and they just multiplied out of all proportion. And then we rehomed quite a few of the stray cats that were around here so that then the cats had been holding the population down, too. And so that kind of all gave us a perfect storm. And I noticed one the other day walking along the telephone wire. He's just, you know, wiggling around like, well, he's certainly no Carl Walenda anyway. Um, and he got over to my tree. And from the tree, he got up under the roof. And you know, that's just kind of a mess. Well, we are just about out of time for now. But, Jean, I had... I've had such a wonderfully good time talking to you today, and I hope that we can get you back maybe next spring and talk about what you're going to do and what you're going to do differently, because I know if you're like me, you always think ahead for next year. Oh, yeah. Tomatoes <laughs> didn't do too well now, and, and but next year we're going to try a new hybrid or something like that and, and do something else. And I like to recommend, and you probably do too, that grow what you know, and then add a new variety or two every year and just see how it works. Because if you try everything new, you don't know whether it's the weather or whether it's what you grew. Anyway, good it's advice. been so Very much fun. And tell everybody like what, what you're... the garden gate. Excuse me? I said I feel like I've been talking over the garden gate. I do, too. Just, just like a couple of gardens. And real quick, tell people what your blog is. The blog is gardeningjones.com slash blog. Um, there's okay. links to the other sites right on there. It's very easy to find. And we're all over social media, too. Okay. Well, I certainly hope that our listeners will check you out because they're going to, you just got have a wonderful stuff on there. I just really enjoyed reading it. And that's all the time we have for today, but we'll be talking more gardening next week on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I hope you'll join us. This is America's Webradio.com. The best in chat radio designed just for you.